Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Adam Grosak, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with American champion Adam Grosak about being a teacher, mentor and all-round advocate for bridge and why he'd make an excellent fire marshal. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. How are you, Jocelyn? I'm well, Catherine. How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm great. Thanks. What's been happening? Well, I had the most fun time at the Bridge Club the other evening. We had a pro-am game. Oh, fun. It was very fun. I mean, the vibe was just great. There were... 24 tables. Oh my gosh. Which is like, you know, we haven't seen that since pre pandemic days. And so that was really exciting. But it was just, there was such a great um, feeling in the air. Everyone was in a great mood and having a wonderful time. And I had just the best time playing with, I was actually a pro. It doesn't seem like all that long ago that I was an am, you know excited to be playing with a pro but it's actually even more fun when you're the pro playing with the amp why because well i think the ams get nervous and i remember when i was an am i would be nervous i really felt like i don't want to look like an idiot they'll see every mistake i make whereas when you're a pro I don't know. You just don't have that same set of nerves. Sure, you want to do well. You want to live up to the expectations that perhaps your 
am is bringing, but it just, it just felt like fun. And when we talked recently about how reluctant I am to not have a fully established card and how I was going to try to make an effort to, to try it out, just playing with a very, very simple card. It was kind of like that. I mean, you know, my am had sent me the card that he normally plays and I looked at it and, you know, I did start asking a couple of questions like, so there's no forcing rays in a minor? Yes. <laughs> um, and then, well, what do you do about reverses fo follow-ups? And, and what are your Drury follow-ups? So my regular partner was playing with my am's regular partner. And she kept saying, not tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be putting these ideas in their head tonight. We're just <laughs> going to play the card. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's do it. And it was just it was just really fun. I mean, sure, there were things that went off the rails, but it was just fun. You know, I, I love it. I hope that other clubs offer a pro-am game. I think it was a huge success. As I said, 24 tables, crazy. People seem to just love it. So as far as putting out suggestions for how to get people back to the clubs in person, playing face-to-face, I suggest pro-am games because so, so fun. And yeah. Do you have any information about how the game was put together? Who organized it and any of the details about that? Well, that would all be the fabulous Kim, the manager of Quick Tricks, who always does a fantastic job. And she was, she was getting on this um, at least a month ago when she asked me to please sign up to be a pro and, you know, found me an am. So I assume she was doing that full court press with, with everyone to really get them signed up and make the pairings. And who were the ams? Where were they drawn from? What pool were they drawn from? Are they coming from lessons? Or is there a supervised game at the club and they were coming from that group? I think a lot of them came from the limited games at the club. Some of them came from the lessons at the club. It wouldn't surprise me if some people don't regularly play in a limited game or in a lesson at the club, but I think most people came from there. And I saw pros that came from far and wide, from the northern reaches of Marin, who almost never come to our club. So I know that Kim probably reached out to them because she wanted a full roster of pros to play with any Anne that was interested in the game and so it just it was amazing yeah it was so fun it sounds great and did you get a sense that the ams were enjoying it as much as the pros i did my am gave me a hug Aww. afterwards so <laughs> you know and he he seemed like he was just super happy to have done it even though we didn't we didn't do terribly well it didn't matter we just had a great time i just got the feeling from you know, some normally kind of curmudgeonly types even were in great moods. I mean, everybody was just very happy. And Kim did tell me afterwards that she didn't hear one single complaint. <laughs> so <laughs> she takes that <laughs> as, as, as really great feedback. <laughs> it's a pretty thankless job, I think, some of the time uh, being the club manager of of the Bridge Club. She does hear a lot of griping, but nothing about this pro-am game. So 
that was validation. (laughs) Well, it sounds like such a great experience and maybe something that other people hint hint might (laughs) want to do at their club. Yeah. If they want to have a great time at the club with tons of tables, people showing up, seems like a pretty good recipe for that. And now it's time for Club Quell. Club in the spotlight. Hello, this is Sarita from Melbourne, Australia. And my bridge club is the Williamstown Bridge Club in the beautiful seaside suburb of Altona. Our club plays in the function room at the Hobson's Bay Sport and Game Fishing Club, which overlooks Point Phillip Bay. We have beautiful sea views through the floor to ceiling windows. What is one thing I'd like people to know about the club? The original club was a successful private club run by Tim Orr, but it is now a not-for-profit organisation run by the members. We have three sessions a week, two for experienced players and one supervised session for newer players. We love encouraging people to take up bridge, both socially and competitively, and offer regular training. We also take part in inter-club team events, making new friends and reconnecting with old ones. The best things about the Williamstown Bridge Club are the friendly atmosphere, it's a club where everyone knows your name, the wonderful people, and for me personally, the lasting friendships, the picturesque location and wonderful coastal views. Are visitors welcome to play in Williamstown? You bet. We look forward to seeing you. So come on down. Email us if you'd like to quell about your club. Club in the spotlight. I'm quelling. I've got two letters for you today, Jocelyn. Are you ready? Oh, am I? (laughs) All right, brace yourself. Here comes number one. This is from Dave in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was playing in a Swiss team event at a regional tournament at least five years ago. My team managed to draw the top seed for the first round. We were very overmatched. Jeff Mextoff and Eric Rodwell were at our table. (laughs) (laughs) Who is the am in that situation? (laughs) No one. (laughs) Yeah. After we played the eight boards, my partner and I thought we'd done okay and were anxious to compare our results with our teammates. However, when they sat down at our table to go over the scores, we discovered that neither of our teammates had kept score. I was captain and did not know what to do. I considered, one, walking through the eight boards with our partners to see if they could remember what happened. Two, going over to the other table and asking the opponents what the scores were at that table. Or three, calling the director. Luckily, before I could decide what to do, Eric Rodwell breezed by and said, we had it as an exact tie. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, 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 yep. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. That's what he says. I managed to quickly say yes. We never let the other team know what actually happened. Well, now they do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was very smooth of you, Dave. Yes. (laughs) Dave would probably have been happy to agree to anything short of a complete blitz, I would think. (laughs) But a tie. Awesome. 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 Our next letter is from James. 
And he writes, here is a story you might like. My parents first met in France in 1945. Both were officers in the army. My mother, a first lieutenant in the medical corps, and my father, a captain and artillery commander. Although they first met in Europe, they discovered they only lived three miles apart in Chicago. They went on a blind date to play bridge. He was smitten. Ten days later, after a short romance, my mother told him she was being sent back to the U.S. He couldn't bear to lose her and so asked her to marry him. She said, okay, as long as we can have five children. The rest is history. They both taught me bridge as a teenager and I was hooked. After 45 years working in the military and aerospace, I retired and joined the ACBL and just made Life Master with 500 points. Woohoo! Congratulations, James. Congratulations, James. That's just absolutely brilliant. And James has also sent in, you know, the um, advice columnist in the newspaper from back in the day, Anne Landon? Oh, sure. Yeah, his parents' story made it into one of her columns. So we'll post that on our socials. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Thank you, James. So if you have any fun stories about a missing score at a Swiss team's event or a blind date at the bridge table, please send them to us. You can find all our contact details on our website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Adam Grosak. American champion Adam Grosak started taking bridge lessons at the age of eight. He initially resisted as a sign at the club welcomed players from nine to 90. And being underage, he didn't want to break the rules. But once his mother convinced him that it was just a turn of phrase, nothing could hold him back. In 2010, he was crowned ACBL King of Bridge. He is a four-time junior gold medalist, has won five North American Bridge Championships, and took bronze at the 2023 European Transnational Mixed Championships. He was also the non-playing captain for the USA 1 women's team for the 2023 Venice Cup. We began by asking if he'd had any interesting hands lately. You know, I've been thinking of interesting hands and there really have not been any that have just been super interesting besides for ones that I've just totally like messed up. Those are the ones that that seem to stick with me the most. So I was just thinking recently I played in the transnationals uh, event in Marrakech, Morocco. I, I played with Emma Kolesnik and we got to a slam that no one else in the field was in not that it really mattered but you can see when you go through the comparison you check the scores online because it was a team game but you know it was a hand where I had like a good 17 like a reasonable 17 count that like most people would open one no trump but Emma and I play 14 to 16 with transfers over a club so I opened a club and she bid like a red suit which showed four cards in the in the major that's above that. And then I bid one no trump, which would play as 17 to 19. So then we had like a sequence where I had shown 17 to 19. 
And we were able to get to like find out that we had like really good meshing values. And we got to a slam that was really like very playable. And I had to decide which esoteric things to guard against. And very silly me, I, I had ace third of diamonds facing a stiff. And in the dummy, I had, we were in a 4-4 four, four fit. So I took, I took one rough low. And the dummy's trumps were something like king, jack, nine, fourth. And in my hand, I had like ace, ten, eight, fourth. So I took one rough low and these opponents who are silent. And then I went back to my hand to take another rough, presumably low, and I got over roughed. The diamonds were seven, two. But it was like one of those hands that, that, you know, at the time I lost to seven, two diamonds, which was really unfortunate. But I was thinking to myself, did I have to play the hand this way? And oftentimes bridge is about trying to optimize your line to to not go down in these types of situations at the table it's hard to be totally accurate all the time with things like this but you know i could have rough with the king and just said i'm going to take a backwards finesse anyway or then when i thought about it later and was talking to some people i said well i could have just taken one rough and taken a finesse first so there were a whole variety of different ways that i could have guarded against seven two diamonds with silent opponents but that was not fun. It's interesting, though. Yeah. That was amazing, that, that tournament, because I, you know, I was planning to go to Europe and play absolutely no bridge, and I would be in Europe for the entire month of August, plus some of July, plus some of what's after August? September. September. So, and this was all to support Emma, basically, in her bridge playing, because she was on the under 26 USA one team in Feldhoven for the junior world championship. And then she was playing in the Venice cup on the USA one women's team, which I was actually the NPC of, of the women's team. So I wasn't going to play any bridge, but then we got, they got eliminated from the Venice cup. So then there was the transnational event, which I got an opportunity to play with Emma. And so that was a lot of fun. So that's where that hand that I just was discussing came up. And what was the final contract for that hand? Uh, it was, I think it was six hearts. It was like a club pass, a heart showing spades pass. I bid one no. And then we, we had a sequence where she showed four hearts and we backed into a four, four heart fit. And then, yeah, those six hearts. Do you have a couple of regular partners? Yes. So I'm a professional bridge player right now. I, I consider myself like a, a mentor and a teacher primarily. So usually my partners are people that are hiring me to be their partner in a bridge game in some capacity. Not always, but there's many different scenarios that could occur. But my main partner, I would say, is uh, someone named Larry Lebowitz, who I play with in all the nationals in the U.S. And I have played with him for the past three years or actually maybe four years uh, at this point. And... Also, we play the trials and some other tournaments like that. So Larry and I uh, try to practice every, every week. It doesn't always work out because, you know, there's travel and life. But uh, Larry is, is my primary partner. And then for mixed events, I, I love when I can play with Emma when her schedule permits and when I don't have obligations to, to a client or something like that. So we, we've 
we're definitely looking for opportunities to do that as well. And then uh, I would say besides those two, my brother is still a regular partner, even though we don't play as partners in the nationals currently. Uh, we still do like a lot of regionals together and that's that's worked out. It's very easy for us to play with each other and we seem to do pretty well except for like whatever percent of the time that we like almost kill each other. So <laughs> so your partner is Zach Grosak? Yes. And what might Zach say is one of the strongest qualities about your game? Hmm. He would say that I'm very hardworking because I'm somebody that will, if I don't know the answer to, you know, a defense, let's say, like trying to work out a defense, I'll just sit there and try to think for as much as I can about the relevant scenarios and try to make the overall best play and try to do as much as I can. You know, we have a rule for my and Zach's partnership, which is, I'm allowed to think as long as I want, only if I get it right. <laughs> because if I think for a long time and then get it wrong, there's hell to pay. So it's in kind of like a prisoner's <laughs> dilemma that you're that you're confronting. It's like, do I just go with the the short wrong? Because <laughs> at least I avoid the worst. Yeah, it it can be a dilemma. The reality of what actually happens is they just always take a long time and try to figure it out and deal with the consequences if you get that. <laughs> well, what might Zach say is mm, something you could work on? He's got a <laughs> he's got a lot that he would say that I could work on, but I don't know. Usually, we're pretty synced up in the bidding, uh, even though we're both maniacs in our own ways. But we we kind of know what it is i i feel like he might say might say something like i'm i'm too robotic or I, I didn't get the same live read that he did and something was so obvious to him you know that that wasn't so obvious to me so he, he might say something like that would you have any notes for him about his game over the years i've definitely given him a lot of feedback and he's been he's been receptive to it I would say I'm really confident with the way that he plays now, and I'm usually very happy. Usually anything that I talk to Zach about is like 90-plus percentage of the time, it's like just comportment. You know, it's the way that he's acting and the, the non-tangible stuff. Uh, in terms of the actual bridge, yeah, okay, I'll give you something. All right, so when we're when we're defending, let's say, one anyone who plays with Zach knows that he is just horrible at giving correct carding. You know, anything like counts. I mean, super preference he'll give when you need it. He'll give you the signal that you need. Okay. <laughs> but giving counts, this is not something that Zachary Grossack likes to do. He does not like to do anything that could possibly help the declarer. Interesting. But and I'll just I'll just add that it has actually made me a better player playing with him over over the course of the years and, and just with this random style that he has with, with the carding, it just really forces you to say, What are you playing for? What is the whole construction of the hand that you're playing for? It just really pushed because 
so many people fall back on count or odd even or something like that as a crutch, but they're not figuring out the whole hand. So it definitely helps there. Can you reverse engineer his random carding to figure out what he's trying to mislead the declarer into believing to get them to make a certain play and you can sort of work backwards. That's why he's doing it. And so this is what we need to do. Sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's really just random and and it's not like clear what the issue is or the problem is, but he just wants to create a little mystery or confusion about stuff. So sometimes he has something tangible in mind and sometimes he doesn't. And like some percentage of the time that he has something tangible in mind, you know, I'm on the same track. I don't know what that percentage is, but does that answer your question? That's great. Am I right that your mother taught you to play bridge? Basically. So the reason why I answer that way is because my mom signed me up for bridge lessons when I was about eight years old. This was at the the local Cavendish Club, which was 15, 20 minutes driving from our house. The sign on the door said, come one, come all ages nine to 90. All are welcome, whatever. And then I was waiting there in the parking lot in the car because I was only eight. Aww. And I was really not, I was not cool with breaking any like laws or rules. So eventually she did convince me that it was just like an expression and that they didn't really actually, they weren't going to card me. So what is it like growing up in a bridge playing family? Yeah, it's it, it. I have very supportive parents. Let me start by saying that. So my mom learned bridge roughly when she was in college. I mean, they played that, that was a thing to do, I guess, back when when they were in college, play bridge. And then but she didn't really know what she was doing, but she kind of knew a little bit. And then actually, it wasn't until I would say about 1999 that my mom retook up bridge and took like an intro to, to bridge les- lesson. And then I learned a year later than that. So my mom actually wasn't in a position where she was comfortable to teach me bridge at that point. My dad does not play bridge, but he's very supportive. I also have, Zach and I have an older brother, Sam, who took the lessons with me, but he doesn't play bridge anymore. Ironically, because there was no money involved so it wasn't interesting for him. And then we became professional rich players. <laughs> so uh, I, I'd say that we've had some like dinner conversations that were, you know, we had to really just come to the realization that talking about bridge at dinner was not really something that would make for, I mean, they were, they were fine. It didn't really matter. But like that was not a great uh, dinner conversation, I would say. My parents were very insistent on, making sure that we had balance as kids in our upbringing. So we did little league baseball. We did sports. My dad coached. uh, We had friends. But at the end of the day, my parents were super thrilled for me to pursue a career in bridge. They just wanted me to go to college and get an education, keep all my options open. So very supportive, I would say, overall. I have seen you playing at a number of tournaments and I've seen you kibitzing at a number of tournaments. You're one of the few male players I've seen kibitzing a woman and I get a sense that you don't make a distinction between male and female 
bridge players, that you respect good bridge players no matter who they are. And I'm wondering if that's partly because your parents have a strong relationship and you have a strong respect for your mother. I have a lot of respect for for my mother in general, and I have a lot of respect for her bridge game and for the way that she operates. Um, you, you you don't want to mess with her. You don't want to be on her bad side. She is, she, but she's very funny and very charismatic and very loving. So all those good qualities. I would attribute most of my, let's call it, anti misogyny to Emma to being with Emma and spending time with Emma and listening to her and listening to what she has to say about women in bridge and, and just exposing me to different types of, yeah. And, and this is Emma Kolesnik. Yes. Can I just bracket this for a minute? Does Emma want us to be saying that you're in a relationship with her? I, yeah, I actually asked her about it and it's fine. It, okay. She said it was good. Like if it, if it comes up, like, or if it's relevant, which obviously it's going to be relevant. But yeah, it's cool, I think. Okay, then maybe I'll leave that in. (laughs) So Emma Kolesnik, who is a champion bridge player who we've had on this program, who you are part of a couple with. Yes. Okay, so that's interesting. So do you feel like having gotten to know Emma very well, your attitudes have changed? Uh, I would say yes. And the, the the most relevant thing that's definitely changed for me is just the sheer amount of of misogyny. You know, there there's so much of it that's that's happening that that I'm just not privy to, or it just have privilege that that, and I'm not seeing it. Uh, but it's really hard for women to be respected as as great bridge players. And if people do respect them, they'll say, "Oh, great woman bridge player." And I know that uh, Samantha Punch has done a lot of work in this area and actually in her study she proved that if you isolate the variables that there there are no gender differences in the playing ability between men and women you know it's the same and if you're isolating for things like opportunities what do you think can be done to address and remedy this misogyny that you've seen run rampant shall we say in the bridge world I would like to see some really, I think what we might actually need is we might actually just need to see women having like some successes in in open events, just all women's teams, more of them, more attention giving, more sponsorship given, more training given, just something that's attempting to level set the playing fields for the opportunities that weren't given to them when they were becoming great bridge players you know i just think of how many times you know when i was growing up i had mentors in new england that would just offer their time expert players never asking to be paid they would want to play with me or help me or whatever and it was great but you know if i were a woman would i have been given the same number of opportunities definitely not and if so there might have been some like additional issues there because there's a lot of like you know there's 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 some other issues that can happen with power dynamics for women also so i think in order for them to really get the respect that they deserve they're going to need to have some like really big wins in open events 
Do you think that the popularity of the mixed competitions now is maybe a stepping stone towards greater gender parity in the game? I think it's great. I think the I have very positive feelings towards the mixed competitions in general. And I think that it, it does maybe bring us closer to parity. There's definitely with the women's events, and I've talked to Emma, and, you know, there's definitely a clear like lowering of the level in, in women's events. And even more so with with how popular the mixed events now are. And now the the women's events aren't even like second. They're like third fiddle now. Yeah, so that's that's something that's that's challenging. So I feel very strongly about supporting the mixed events. I love the mixed events. Anything that I can do to promote them, I, I do. Do you remember the first time you were hired to play bridge? Yeah, I was hired at the bridge club, and it was by somebody who who my mom knew and she hired me for lessons I think I was about 16 it was maybe over the summer I played weekly she was lovely it was like a summer job was it the sort of thing where you would do an intense post-mortem after every session or was it a little bit more relaxed were you specifically trying to teach her certain concepts or tools or was it just whatever came up catch as catch can yeah i don't remember exactly what my style was like when i was like 16 years old however <laughs> my i can say that my style now is i do like to do the sort of liberal arts style education for bridge you know as things are coming up what what people should be thinking about and what people should be doing you know, one of the things that my regular partner asks me for, Larry, all the time is he wants drilling. He wants drilling, drilling, drilling. He wants to, you know, do 20 of these exercises, like look at doubles, look at, you know, non-serious three, you know, whatever. Have to look at it and just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And that's a good way to do it. It's just not, it's not something that I normally do. I normally like to be in the moment. I like to have people thinking and counting with an open mind and just every problem uh, attacking it. I think it's a more effective approach to do it that way. Are you able when you're playing with a client, say in that situation, to have all that going on in your head as well as looking at the game? I just wonder how you juggle all the different agendas. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would say yes. For the most part, I'm able to keep my feedback to my client uh, separate from my actual ability to play. That does bring up a good point because, you know, when let's say I'm playing in a regional with a client and I won't mention who it was, but I I played in in a tournament relatively recently with a, a newer client. And at the end of every hand, he wanted to sort of do like a quick rehash of uh, oh I should have played a uh, I shouldn't have played the spade before the the heart blah 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 and I did find it a bit distracting for myself but like it was a little bit of a give and take because he needed that feedback at the table to keep the confidence but also like that was not at all part of the way that I play bridge and I I just like to say nothing when a hand is done I like to move on to the next hand. And, and if I do say anything, it's either a positive, like if I think it, it's like an affirmation, you know, something that I think my partner did well, that they would appreciate my, my saying that they did well, 
like quickly without embarrassing the opponents or like if there's the literal system misunderstanding that came up then that needs to be addressed or the opponents play in the usual system and i'm not sure we're on the same page yes but other than that i really don't like doing feedback i i like to save everything until the end because i find it distracting for my partner and for me for my own game Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. With your Twitch channel, when you've got people responding in real time, How's that different? Obviously, it's different, but I'm curious for you to explain how that's different. I found it to be very enjoyable. I like the the stream of consciousness and like as I'm playing to sort of like talk out everything that's in my mind and, and just give all that feedback because in the moment, there is a lot of it going on. There's a lot of things. And then when we get to the analysis at the end, I usually remember everything that I'm thinking at the time, but you know, maybe there's something that I'm not going to remember. So it's helpful. Yeah. I saw a comment, someone who'd been watching you on Twitch and they were saying how they, they found it really interesting because they could hear you breathing and they, they could sense that you were frustrated just from, from the way that you were, you know, breathing and, and that they felt it was a much more visceral, interesting, much closer experience of almost being with you in the game i'll say this when covid happened and all the my lessons switched to online you know that was that was awesome because i could just yell at the computer (laughs) and didn't have to do anything to like internalize my reaction and there was actually a period of time after covid where you come back to the bridge table and you have to remind yourself oh i have to be professional i can't do this (laughs) (laughs) When you play on Twitch, do you play ever with your students, your clients? I have. So I would think that might be interesting because you're in the teacher mode and you're also in the performing mode. Yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is an interesting one. Uh, and a lot of it is uncharted or unprecedented 
territory because you know who does streaming with with a client and a relation you know there's there's a lot of things to kind of think through but i would always ask my clients permission beforehand and if they thought it was kind of like a cool fun thing to do then then we just ran with it and didn't worry about all the intricacies of you know is this how is this going to sound is this condescending you're going to be embarrassed all that type of stuff because if they were cool with it generally then it was fine Unlike bridge, poker is a solitary game. You're in your own head and you are also a poker player. So I'm interested to hear how you would compare the two games. I love reading people. I love practicing my live reads. I love being able to pick up on things and human behavior as they could possibly relate to cards and the way that people act in in different types of situations. And I have always thought that I think that there's good crossover in being able to pick up physical tells from people with poker and with bridge. And I think that when I'm playing poker and I'm reading people and bridge reading people, and I think that it kind of like they work off each other a little bit. You know, if someone's acting too much, how just just so many different intangible situations that that you can just learn from. What is it about the two games that make them interesting to someone like you? You know, why are so many bridge players also poker players? I think there's a few reasons for that. First of all, I think that a lot of bridge players liked like gambling they like cards they like the action and they like the the human behavior element part of it and i think that why do most bridge players like poker i mean it's it's just there's there's a thrill i i get i get a thrill when i play poker unlike usually the thrill that i get when i play bridge and what does that turn on what's it about i just really enjoy being in the moment and 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 playing cards and like actually trying to work something out live and being able to trust my own live reads and instincts and do things correctly you know i i I really get a lot of value and appreciation for when i'm i'm playing well whether it's bridge or poker and i really try very hard to play well and to eliminate my mistakes so i'm trying to really just be as sharp as I can mentally. And I feel like playing a lot of bridge and poker just helps me balance my brain a little bit in terms of two different activities, just making me smarter in different ways so that I can kind of, you know, stay live and stay alert and not miss things. What are the different ways? How are they different? So poker is, there. there is no card play element in poker. It's all with betting chips related to, you know, how good you think your hand is and and the bet sizing. Okay, but isn't that just one part of bridge? So, okay, I'll give you... Let me talk about poker for a second. Sure. Okay, because this is the way my brain is working on. I know this is a bridge podcast. No, no, it's good. We're curious. But when you you play poker, okay, let's just assume Texas Hold'em is the most popular form of poker where you get two cards and then... The board is going to come with a flop, a turn, and a river, which is three cards, then one, then one. And you're trying to make your best five-card hand. Okay. 
So one thing that, I, that I've learned in poker that's very important is to really think about the story that you're telling with your betting, you know, because you, you want, if you're going to execute a bluff, for example, you have to really make sure that what you're telling with your bet sizing makes sense. Because when you make a bet on any given street or any given time, you're representing that you have either like this or this. And your bet sizing usually can kind of be indicative of that just based on logic, whether it's a big bet or a small bet. So when you go back and think about the story that's being told and you think about what what they bet on the flop, what they bet on the turn, what they bet on the river, and, and try to put together all the pieces of the bet sizing pattern, there's a lot that can come from that. And then you combine things like tempo and physical tells and things like that. And now you're getting a lot of intangible elements that really can separate someone from being being a good poker player or not a good poker player. Some of this comes into play in bridge also. You know, the, the, the telling a story. You, you were talking earlier about Zach's defending you know, and the random carding and what he's doing is he trying to create an illusion for declarer. Absolutely, there's crossover in something like that that could happen. So when 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 situations like they they are more rare in bridge, obviously, but when they come up, it's good to be able to execute them. It's interesting that in poker you're not penalized. I mean, there aren't rules about the physical tells so much, the bluffing where there are such strict rules in bridge about not taking inferences from something that partner does. But it sounds like there is an area, maybe it's kind of abstract, where there's an overlap in terms of telling the story. Like, I mean, I'm a very novice poker player, but if you have great cards, you don't want to go in with a huge bet right away because that's going to scare everybody else off. If you sort of go slower, then you might lull them in and get more money. Exactly. And and what you're describing is all about the story that you're telling with your betting. You know, if you bet really big all the time, only when you have good hands, people are going to start to know that that means you have a good hand. So you have to devise a betting strategy, not only on this street, but when the next card comes and that's going to be cohesive and that will force your opponent to decide, well, is do they really have it or do they not? And is their betting, is is it like balanced? Could they have it or not have it at the same time? So you're trying to come up with a story that makes sense. So when you play online, it would seem that a lot of those kinds of physical tells and table reading, they're gone. Or do you still find that you're able to glean information table feel type information online, whether it's poker or or bridge. I would say that you're you're mostly correct in that it eliminates a lot of the ability to do physical tells when you're playing online. I don't really play online poker, so I'll just leave that aside. But in terms of online bridge, I think that a lot of it gets lost. And when you play on different platforms, for example, something like Real Bridge or now there's Swan Games, you get to also see your opponents. So that does add in some of it. But just on BBO, I would say that there definitely is a lot lost in terms of that. And I, I think that it should be part of 
bridge. Bridge is a game. It's a card game. You're allowed to make your own deductions based on the opponent's actions. Your online handle is Never East. Is it true that you never sit east? It is not true. I, <laughs> I was about 12 years old when I made that. And for whatever reason, I just thought it was cool. Do you have a favorite seat? I like east. Well, that must be confusing (laughs) to your opponents, which is always good. Yeah. Is there an issue in Bridge that's really important to you? The future of Bridge is very important for me. And I think it's just so obvious that we need to get more young people playing Bridge. So anything that we can do to really get young people listening to bridge like what you're doing with the podcast is so amazing and so much appreciated and just just serving such a great purpose to hit different audiences just trying to hit different audiences the work that has been started by let's say michael rosenberg did a lot of it but all the people at the usbf and now alex kolesnik is running the junior training program that has been so great and sort of just being something that's taking a very large population and geographically far from each other places and helping everyone from the U.S., all the juniors in the U.S., get at least some structured training. You know, we're always so impressed by some of these European countries and how they're able to, like, be so cohesive as teams. But in reality, you know, these countries, they they can have a camp and, and go for a weekend and everyone can go meet at a certain place or take a train just because of the how close everyone lives to each other. It's a lot harder to do in the U.S., so it needs to be online. Really good point. And we don't have those nice castles where they have their bridge yeah. caps for the juniors. True. Have you made any appearances at any of these junior camps as a seasoned player? Well, I was a mentor for online for like two years, I, I've I've done a lot of like mentoring of 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 junior kids and been part of the program for a while. It is a time commitment, you know. It's 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 like anything else. It's like a a regular time commitment. Um, so it's it's a little bit challenging with how much I travel to really make that commitment all the time. But it's definitely rewarding, and I, and I like giving back to Bridge when I can and and helping some of the young people. You know, when I went to college. At, at Brandeis, I started the Brandeis Bridge Club and the Bridge Team, and we had a collegiate thing, and we took, you know, so I've I've tried when I can. Well, it sounds like you put your money where your mouth is. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, you know, we've got to get more people playing, but everyone has to do something to get people playing, so I think that's wonderful. Thank you. Do you have a favorite tournament that you really love to play? Probably the trials, the U.S. trials with are the way that the United States does does the selection process for the upcoming Bermuda Bowl, usually. However, this coming year, it's um, to select one team for the Olympiad. So historically in the trials, the way that they've done it is they've gotten the top however many, like 16, 20 teams, and they've all been like super high-level teams it's a very well organized tournament. You know, everyone's got hotel rooms and and playing against the high, highest level of competition. The hospitality is great, and it's just very very narrowly focused and like really really serious atmosphere. Now, it's still similar, but 
were using the Lovebridge tablet in the trials, which I'm sure you know a lot about. And there's exactly two players in each room. You have one opponent and you, and you're playing on the tablets. So you've done this before, yeah? Played with the tablets in this way? Yes. And what's it like? Do you like it? I like it more than I thought I would. So I was originally very opposed to it, but now I really don't mind it so much. I can adapt. And there are some advantages to being in one room with one opponent. You can kind of like, in many ways, it's actually more social, especially if you like the opponent that you're in the room with. You can sort of just like talk a lot. What about if you're in the room with someone you're not such a fan of? Probably just say nothing. (laughs) Getting back to what you like about that tournament generally, is it the intensity of the competition? I would say primarily, yes. It's, It's the intensity. It's, you know, playing against amazing teams and being able to really fight. It's having like eight segments because what they do in the knockout stages, they have eight segments of 15 boards. So it's a really, really long format. So it feels like a trench war. So when you have those long matches, it feels like it feels like, you know, you can take a few more risks and state of the match becomes more of a thing and it's just fun. Is that in one day, hundred and twenty boards or two days? Two days. I was gonna say. Often people will say that one of the reasons they might enjoy a tournament is because they like to go out to dinner and they they this and they that and they socialize or it's a nice setting. But when it's such an intense competition over such a compressed period of time, is it just the the drilling down that you love? Because there wouldn't be much time, obviously, for any of that other stuff. I think it's the establishing of the highest level of competition. It's just like achieving that level. And, you know, if especially if we can win is something that I really value very highly. I also love playing bridge internationally. And I try to do it as much as possible. Uh, I've been to the Reykjavik Bridge Festival for four years in a row, you know, and every time with a different partner. So I love that tournament. I love Pula. I love those festivals. And I also especially love going to the European Championships every other year because it's closed one year and open the other year. So I love going to the Open Championships. When you travel internationally and play bridge in foreign countries, do you get out? of the hotel out of the room where the events are held and actually see the place that you're visiting or is it bridge bridge all bridge it used to be bridge bridge and all bridge so alex kolesnik could not believe he was telling everybody that he knew that we went to tromso which is in the arctic circle in norway and we did precisely, Zachary and I did precisely zero sightseeing when we were in Tromso. Zero. But things have changed. Now I'm very intellectually curious about <laughs> museums and, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, no, actually, I, I try to do a lot of sightseeing stuff now and really do enjoy it. That would make you, I think, unusual for a bridge player. <laughs> for some of them, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just the, with the sheer volume of traveling that a lot of professional bridge players do, it can get very tiring. And we're really traveling for work a lot of the time. So 
it's it's hard to get the energy and motivation to always go out and do that. But I, I try to. I, I, I really do. And I, I enjoy it when I do. With all that plane travel, how do you manage your, your energy level? How do you basically save your energy for the competition? I try to get enough sleep, which, you know, if you're kind of religious in terms of when you're going to sleep with the time zone changes, I'm sure you all know about that a lot more than I do. But uh, I th- think it's really important to try to force yourselves to go to sleep at, and wake up at the correct times and to just adjust to jet lag the best way. But besides for just sleeping regiments, I try to exercise in normal amounts. You know, too much exercise just isn't helpful for my energy levels. It's just going to make me tired. But, you know, definitely try to do something every day. Just try to be a little bit phys- physically active. And I eat breakfast, so I'm very good at eating. So, it ha- you know, it helps. Do you stick to any particular meals or is there any principle guiding what you eat, especially at a tournament? I try to stay mostly plant-based for the food that I'm eating just because I think that it's healthier. And I think that there's some scientific evidence that eating a mostly plant-based diet is the healthy way to go. So I try to do that. I try to you know, also lower the quantities, sheer quantities of food that I'm eating because that's just important to not gain extra weight. And that's something that can be hard to do, you know, but yeah. Do you have a preferred way of unwinding after a tournament, either after a long day of playing or at the end of a whole big long tournament? Not necessarily. I like to be with people. I like to talk to people. I like to do do activities. I would say I don't really drink that much. I mean, at this point in my life. So that's not really something that I do. So I don't know that there's actually anything that I, in particular that I do to unwind. I like to swim. I like to go swimming. Sure. And most hotels will have a nice pool. So that's something you can do fairly easily, yeah? Yes. And I've started to do some yoga, which is good. So, yeah, those are all all healthy things. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you when you've been playing bridge or bridge adjacent? So, in 2010, I was playing in the World Junior Individual Bridge Championship in Philadelphia. And um, this was my first ever junior bridge tournament, like, ever. I didn't take a plane until I was 18 years old. Uh so this was in the United States. So it was still international and I was playing and I was representing the under 21 team. We just barely didn't make it to the uh, knockout stage. After that event, they also had a individual. So I played in the junior individual and I just barely made the cut for like the finals. There was like 24 people made the cut and I was like finished in 23rd in the qualification. So we're in the finals and the fire alarm goes off and the bridge director comes on to the microphone, says, please, everybody just relaxed. We're going to investigate the situation. And at the time, my mom was there with me and she's like, "Uh uh-uh. No son of mine is going to burn down in a building when <laughs> a stupid p- 
person is saying to stay in the building. So I evacuated the building mid-final of the event, and I went outside, and no one was evacuating, and the alarm was going off 10 minutes, 20 minutes, go by. And I'm like, Mom, I got to go. I'm going to get penalized. I got to go back in. Come on, what are you doing? So I went back in, and of course, they were still playing. And my mom was like yelling at the directors and they're like, just play, play, play. You're going to be late. So I only missed like one board, but eventually I did not get penalized and I went on to win the event. Very good. Oh, congratulations. That's really cute. (laughs) (laughs) So everyone sat there and played while this this noise was just going. Yeah, no one else evacuated. (laughs) Gosh, of course not. They're bridge players. Exactly. Exactly. Are there any books that have most helped your game or that you love to recommend to people, especially developing players? So I'm not a big reader, but like I actually have read a number of bridge books. I really like My Favorite 52 by Larry Cohen, and I would recommend that to any aspiring bridge player uh, also because it's it's the way that it's written is that it's 52 bridge problems. And I think they're all like defense or card play. So, but it's definitely with a focus on defense and it puts you in the scenario and it walks you through trick two. This is a dummy. What do you play? Gives you a little symbol and then you can't keep reading until you say what you would do. Then it gives an explanation. It moves on a few tricks. What would you do? What, what, and then it keeps going and it's written in that style, which I think is really helpful. You're talking about getting the like live thinking of people as every trick is going on. So I really enjoyed that book. Brilliant. That's great. Adam, do you have a favorite convention or gadget that you really love to play? So here's how I'm going to start by answering that question. Okay. (laughs) So Justin Law, who unfortunately obviously died, was just a totally brilliant bridge player. And for the longest time, he was maintaining a bridge blog. Okay. And many people, there were many great things on this bridge blog. I think it still is live. Or there's still, you can still find it on the internet. But he was the one who popularized this sort of cryptic puppet stamen, which I don't, which a lot of people play now, which is where over one no Trump, the responder can bid in, in the version that he did, which was in 2010 or whatever, would bid three clubs. And opener would say whether or not they have a five card major. And then responder would use either three hearts or three spades, uh, presumably over the no five step, which is three diamonds, to show four cards in the other major. So like one no, pass three clubs, asking for a five card major, pass three diamonds, no five card major, pass three hearts, I have four spades. Now the opener says whether or not they have four spades. And you might ask, what's the big deal about this? But the big deal is, you don't reveal a 4-4 miss auction because in traditional stamen, it would go one no, responder would bid two clubs asking for a four-card major. I'd show one major, you'd have another major, and now they're on lead, they know what to lead or what not to lead. So he invented this cryptic puppet stamen, and now it's like ubiquitous across experts all over the place. But most people use two no as, as puppet rather than three clubs now, but that's kind of irrelevant. Anyway, um, that's not what I was going to, that was, that was actually a tangent. That's not your favorite. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. But what I was saying was he has four things 
that he would say make a great bridge convention. Okay, so there are four components that make a great bridge convention. And this is from Justin. Okay, and then after this, remind me, I'll give you something that his father taught me. Hey, mom. So from Justin, okay, what are the four things that make a bridge convention great? It comes up often. Frequency. Okay. It solves a problem. Utility. It's easy to remember. Three. And the fourth one is the natural meaning of the bid is not sorely missed. Right. So, you know, you just take, let's just take a model convention. Let's take normal statement. Okay. One or Trump passed two clubs. And let's go through the four criteria. Does it solve a problem? Yes. We're trying to find four, four majors who fits. Is the natural meaning of the bid sorely missed? No, we don't really want to play two clubs that often over one now. Okay. Is it easy to remember? Yes. Does it come up often? Yes. So statement is a great convention because it scores well on all of these criteria. So for any bridge convention that anyone is ever going to play, before you add that to your convention card, you need to check to see if it's hitting well on those four criteria. Because if it's not, you need to actually be honest with yourself and say, why is it that I want to add this convention? Is it because someone else plays it? Or is it because I actually think it's going to help my bridge game? So let me give you some examples of some conventions that I like that hit well on these criteria. I like non, non-serious three-no or the non-serious three-no, three-spade, three-no inversion. Comes up pretty often. It's really helpful that when, you know, everyone says, oh, it's so great. We're in a two over one auction. You can bid slowly. But when we're bidding on every hand and, and no one knows who's got extras and who doesn't have extras and whether we're supposed to go to slam or not, because I'm just answering your bid, But am I showing? No. So this is a convention that really solves a problem. And it's pretty, pretty easy to remember. You can create some rules on it. Uh, let's see what else I like. I like playing two no pass three spades as minor suit statement. Again, it comes up often. It's easy to remember. We're not missing anything. You know, many people play this as a relay to three no and then and then do some stuff thereafter. But what about the eight and nine counts that have like five, four in the minors? You know, I just want to kind of bid three spades and see if partner gets excited. Otherwise, I'm just going to play three no. So it's good to be able to just do that and be able to stop in 3-0 because I have seen a lot of hands with 20 opposite eights that cannot make more than nine tricks. And one more convention that I like is Roman key card Blackwood. And I know it may seem obvious or whatever, but this is a convention that's really, really important for slam bidding. It's easy to remember. It's structured. And... Actually, the best part about Roman key card Blackwood is when you don't bid a slam and you find out the important piece of information that you're off to many key cards. So, you know, any slam auction that doesn't include Roman key card Blackwood is always at least a little bit uncomfortable. Pretty safe in assuming then that a convention that you wouldn't like would not hit very many of Justin's four criteria correct Can you give us an example of one that you really dislike that misses them all guestum you know this convention guestum where you bid three clubs over one of the major open and you show clubs and bananas or something or you show two five card suits or whatever 
This is a great example of a convention that I'm never going to ever possibly remember ever. And I'm going to bid three clubs on a lot of hands that have six or seven clubs that want to preempt. <laughs> I'm going to give you another one of my least favorite conventions. There are these people that are very smart and they love to play because they, they have a problem. They love to play the two no pass three no shows five spades and four hearts. Have you heard of this <laughs> yes. convention before? Oh, we've experienced it in all of its glory. <laughs> that has got to be like the worst convention in bridge. <laughs> I'm sorry if I've if I've offended anybody, but it just it just comes up so infrequently. And 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 when it does come up, it's like over fifty percent that one of the people is going to forget. In my practice, like it's just it just is so, it's so high to be forgotten. And then you were going to tell us one more that Justin's father. Yes, Justin's father. Thank you. Uh, so after my college education, I wasn't sure what I exactly was going to do. So I actually had some jobs in the real world. And one of the things that I did after college was I went down for an interview with Bob Hammond in Dallas at his company at SCA Promotions. And at the time, uh, Haymont was working there. Barb Bramley was working there. You know, it was a mecca of bridge aficionados and just like an awesome place. So I went to lunch with Haymont and he was giving me some advice on how to deal with and how to act professionally with clients. And he said, for every piece of advice or constructive criticism that you give, you have to also say one thing good. You have to give one affirmation. So every piece of constructive criticism needs to be met with at least one affirmation in order to help an advancing player. And that's something I really try to live through and like work through. And I think it's a, a great way to act, people. What is the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given? I think it's imagining hands for partner in the bidding. So when you're trying to figure out whether to go to slam, let's say, okay, and you're trying to make a decision for whether to bid on or whether to part, pass partner in four of a major, you should try to imagine three hands for partner. Imagine a good hand, imagine a bad hand, and imagine a medium hand. And try to think about, try to actually give a construction of 13 cards that are not in your hand that are consistent with your partner's bidding. And just see, like, if partner has that hand, where do I want to be? If partner has this hand, where do I want to be? If partner's Because actually going through that exercise will really help you start to think about the hands better and start to think about whether you there are enough hands in the range that belong to slam or whether you should actually take it a little bit slower and just pass. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. It's been terrific. It's been great talking to you both also, and I, I just really appreciate all the work that you've done for Bridge through this podcast. So thank you, and please keep up the good work. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Adam Grosak. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner Posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Katherine Harris. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message. And please consider joining the Sorry Partner Posse 
that helps keep us on the air, so to speak. You'll get ad-free episodes, a monthly newsletter, and other supporter perks. These links and links to Club Kvel and our merch store are in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Adam says, practice imagining partners' hands from the bidding. Going through that exercise will help you know when to bid on and when to pass. If only. <laughs> Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.